beginning of the year since, um, what is this, it's come up on six or six weeks or so now, and we're not even out of chapter two. In fact, we've just kind of like skimmed a little, a bit of chapter two here because there's so much in here that's foundational for how we view the world, for how we understand who God is, for how we understand who we are. And we've been taking the last few weeks understanding what it means that God has made us and the different facets of our humanity. And we're going to continue that this morning looking at the image of God. We're going to be looking, particularly looking at chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, but you also see in there as well, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, which is a, a, a complementary um, narrative as well for, for God creating humanity. But before we, we read, before we, we begin here, uh, we need God's word, or we need God's spirit to enliven his word for us. And so let's pray for that. Lord God, we come this morning here as people who need to not just hear your word, but we are people who need our ears opened and our hearts um, opened, and we need to have your word come afresh and come alive for us. We need your spirit to be with us this morning to change us, to switch our perspectives, to enliven us. So please, we beg that you would be with us here for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then chapter two. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Amen. Many poems have been composed after witnessing a significant event. And a lot of times this takes the form of an ode, a poem that celebrates something wonderful, beautiful, and momentous. It looks at the various aspects and and the facets of an event, of a person, of an object, and it lifts it up for all to see and behold the wonder as well. And it just so happens that the first poem that we have in the Bible is this here, with the creation of humanity. And specifically, the poetic form is seen in chapter 27, sorry, in verse 27, where God celebrates his crowning creation makes man and woman. He makes humanity. And he's overcome with this moment. It has brought him such joy to have just made these special creatures. And so the author then breaks into poetic delight. It's an ode to humanity's creation, if you will. And he specifically draws our attention to this important idea that God creates humanity in his image, his likeness. 
There's something obviously very different with how God made humans. It shouldn't take the Bible to tell us that there is something unique about us over the rest of the animals. But the Bible points to our origins here to further show us just how unique we are. For one thing, there's a special care involved that's described here in how he, uh, for how he makes humanity as opposed to all the other creatures. There's no poem that he has here for the birds and the fish. There's no, there's no ode for the beasts and the livestock. He doesn't call forth humanity out of the ground like he did the animals. He doesn't have them spring forth into existence like the birds and the fish. What he does here, it's a much more intimate act. He gathers the dust, he fashions it carefully, and then he breathes his life into it to fill the lungs of the man and finally make that man a living creature. But most of all, though, it's God's words here that point out just how amazing this this moment of creation is. When he deliberates, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God made humanity. God made us to look like him. We are his image. What is it that makes us human? How do you define being human? In simple terms, it's this. It's the image of God. Even the most ordinary moments of our everyday lives, even in those times there, we are the image of God. And we're going to dwell on the wonder and the curiosity of that image this morning here. And I want us to first see that it's a reflecting image. It's a reflecting image. One of the most foundational concepts that we need to grasp for understanding humanity is that we are created in God's image. We are created in his likeness. When you look at yourself in a mirror, when you look at others who are around you, what do you see? Do it right now. You can look around. What do you see when, we, when you look at everyone else? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, you know what he saw? He saw himself. And he created them, man and woman. As he did that, he, he looked at his representation. That's the image. It's as if he were looking at himself in a mirror. That doesn't mean that God looks like us. God doesn't resemble humanity. When a child looks like a parent, we don't say that the parent looks like the child because we recognize the source of where the likeness comes from. God doesn't look like us, but in a way, we look like God. And maybe we should think of this in terms of how you reproduce a photograph. You have an image of someone. You have a photograph there, and there are two ways that you can reproduce it. One of them is making a copy, putting in a copy machine and you come out with an exact replica of the original where every detail is captured in its exact way. It's intended to be an exact representation, an exact reproduction there. But on the other hand, you have a painted portrait though. Now generally the painting isn't exact. It has brush strokes there, are, there are, are different aspects that go along with that. Often in the portrait, there are artistic interpretations that are added to highlight certain characteristics about that person and maybe even some of the unseen aspects of their lives or their, their emotions there. But even though that painted portrait isn't as exact as a copy, It's still an accurate representation, though. It still bears resemblance to the original, and it even tells the stories behind the person that just a simple photo may not capture. 
See, God made humanity in, in his image not as a photographic copy of his essence, but as an artistic portrait of who he is. When he first created us, he revealed his likeness and his image in our beings. So our image, what you see when you look at yourself and what you see when you look at others is a reflection of God's image in this world. We are his tangible representations upon this earth. And a representation means that you can't confuse the likeness with the person. All right, we, we understand that that even though the Mona Lisa, the painting, is the likeness of the woman, that painting isn't really a 16th century woman. We're not God, nor are we gods. We're spiritual, but we are not divine. Likeness means more that we are patterned after God, but it also at the same time maintains a distinction with him. And so the point isn't to become infatuated with the image, but to reflect and point others upwards then to the God whose image that we reflect. It's as if we're mirrors. As he looks down upon us, his image shines down and is projected onto us so that he sees reflections of himself. And then in turn, his image is seen as we reflect it not only back to him, but throughout the world. We are bearers of a glorious image. We are bearers of the image of the eternal God himself. So that when we look at each other, friends, there are no ordinary people. But second that we see about this image, it's not just a reflecting image, but it is also an embodied image. An embodied image. God made all of us in his image. Now, when we hear that, particularly if you're familiar with biblical teaching, we understand that to be God made all of us, every person in his image. But there's a different way of understanding that phrase too. God made all of us, not just everyone, but all of us as in all of who we are. Our whole person is made in, the, in his image. See, it's not only part of you that bears the image of God. It's been common throughout history and for many of us today to not only think about the image of God in terms of something spiritual, right? God breathed the life of the spirit within us so that there's something that makes us different from the animals. So maybe the image of God is in my soul, right? Or it's related to those spiritual aspects of our lives, our immortality or our intellect or our moral sense or, or our wills. And all of those things are true. They are all parts of, of, of the image of God which God has given us. They are, are all aspects of our lives which elevate our existence beyond being merely animals or just simply being a bio-machine. And they do add a spiritual depth in our lives. But if God made us to be his reflecting image and he created us as whole people, as body and soul, then why would only part of ourselves do that? If I am the image of God, why would only 50% of me be that? Our whole selves, our embodied existence reflects God's likeness. And so how do we square that with God's spiritual nature? Because God doesn't have a body. That's pretty clear right away from Genesis 1-1 as it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When there was, there was nothing but him, he creates all physical matter. He doesn't have a body, right? There's no 
matter. There's no body. But there are times when people remind us of, some, of someone else by the way that they look. But there are also times when we encounter people who remind us of another by the way that they act, by the way that they talk, by the way that they carry themselves, by the way that they treat others or conduct themselves. And sometimes that's just as striking as looks. The likeness of God isn't seen in our physical bodies as if God had a body, but in those functioning aspects that our bodies are given and in how we use them. God gave you eyes. Why? So you can see. God gave you ears. Why? So you can hear. God may not have eyes and ears, but the fact that he created you in his image and he gave you eyes and ears reveals something about him. That he's not a God who is blind and deaf, but he's a God who also sees and hears. He sees and hears all things, and he even hears the cries of his suffering people. Look at your fingers. They're nimble. They're articulate. If you didn't have them, work would be hard. It's when we don't have full use of our fingers that we realize really just how amazing the full range of their movement is. God doesn't have fingers. But as his image, your fingers reveal his articulate nature and how he creates and how he cares. How about your speech capabilities, your vocal cords, your lungs for pushing the air then through them to give voice? Well, God doesn't have a larynx, but yours reveals that he is a communicating God. He speaks his words of command. He speaks his words of grace, his words of presence, those things which come from his very character. Your body bears the image of God just as your soul does. It reveals the very character and the being of God. So friends, don't take your bodies for granted. It has immense value. Don't devalue it. It's not some crude bio machine for your true self to inhabit. It's not the prison house for your soul. God made the human body with intent. Your body has just as much validity about you and, and who you are as a person, as your soul does. If we think about ourselves only and, and our identities only through what we subjectively feel and not through also what we objectively see, then we are not doing justice to the worth of the bodies that have been given to us. God cares about your whole self. He cares about your whole person, and that includes even your body. It matters to him. He cares what you do with it. It doesn't belong to you only. He gave it to you to be valued, to be cherished and cared for just as he intended it. But he also cares about what other people do to your body. When people abuse it, when they speak poorly about it, or they treat your body in ways that strip it of its worth. He cares about your body when it's sick. He cares about your body when it's unwell when it doesn't work right. And as proof for just how much God cares about your body, then look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised into a real body. And the hope that he came to give to humanity wasn't just of saved souls, but of saved bodies, of resurrected bodies. If God doesn't care about your body, if he didn't love you, both body and soul, then Jesus' salvation could have just stopped at the cross to pay for your sins. But 
Because your body is intrinsic to who you are and to the image that you bear, Jesus was raised up to save the whole person. But the image of God here we also want to look at here is a dignified image. Third, it's a dignified image. Let's step back for a moment and think again about the one whose image that we bear. So far in the biblical story, we know God as a sovereign creator. God makes all things. He sets up the natural order underneath him, under his watchful sustenance. In other words, we can say God is king. Only a king is capable of bringing order and governance to his realm. Only God is capable of governing the realm of the entire universe. And if God is king, and he makes humanity in his image to reflect him, then he also makes humanity in his kingly image. He's made us to be royalty. We are kings and queens in his image. And that's even reflected in the purpose that he has here when he says, and let them have dominion. That's royal language right there. Bearing his image means that we have a royal status as kings and queens, that we are intended to be rulers over the earth in his stead. Having that, that privilege given to us underneath him. Now, we could go in all sorts of places with that right there. The implications of that are myriad. And we, we've looked at some, I mean, even if you think about work a few weeks ago, but we're going to take just a second here to reflect on this one aspect. The curious, wonderful idea that every person is a king in God's image. Every person you meet, every person you encounter here at church, at the grocery store, at work or a school, on the sports field, whatever it is, every single person that you bump into is royalty. And as royalty, every person, no matter who it is, no matter the condition in which they're in, they are therefore deserving of the highest dignity and honor. And not only deserving, but equally deserving. There is a plurality that we see in the image that's implied there. God says, let's create them, male and female, to everyone. See, there's no hierarchy in in the image. You're either human and in God's image, or you're a subhuman animal. There's no in-between. You're either one or the other. If you are human, you have the image of God. You are a king. And when we begin to look at people as anything less than human, and as anything less than bearing God's image, and all equally worthy of the same dignity, then we, we will begin to start treating people then as subhuman animals. What was the first step that Nazi Germany took in the Holocaust? It was stripping Jews and gypsies and other marginalized folk of their humanity. Everyone is equally deserving of royal dignity, and no one is any less worthy. And this applies to every stage of life, both the beginning and the end. The smallest baby bears the royal image even before she or he leaves the womb. That child doesn't emerge from the uterus and then is suddenly king at that point. It's not a status conferred upon them, upon birth. The the baby isn't birthed and then they slap a crown on its head there in in the, 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 the delivery room and then hail this king upon arrival. That's not how it works. Even on the inside, at the very earliest stages, they are royal. Already at conception, they are whole people. They're still developing in their bodies, but they're still at the human soul in a developing body. And that little body also bears God's image. 
They are little kings and queens, and they deserve our dignity and our honor. And so really, the issue of abortion doesn't depend on whether or not there's a heartbeat, but it depends on whether or not that is a person. Is there transcendence in that little being right there? But the same goes not just for the beginning of life, but it goes for the end of the spectrum too. The oldest people. You don't suddenly lose your your crown at age 80. You too are royal and you are deserving of the same honor. Not just because you've lived a a long time, but because you still bear God's royal image. And even if you're dealing with the effects of aging, or if your body is breaking down, or you're facing issues and struggles with end of life, chronic disease, you matter. The body might be broken, but the image still remains upon you, upon your whole self. Let's not forget others then who live between the poles of the beginning and the final moments of life. It's the image of God in every person, which is why racism is evil. Every person, each person, the whole of that person is valuable and royal equally. It's why violence against others is evil, and no matter what form it takes, whether it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, even the words that we use against another, it strips the crown of God's royal image from their heads, it throws it onto the ground, and it spits on it. Every person that you see, the homeless person, your annoying neighbor, even those people who believe things differently from you or they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum, that person bears the image of God. And they are valued in the eyes of their creator just as much as anyone and they deserve the according respect and honor and dignity. And ultimately, any attack upon them, and no matter what form it takes, verbal, physical, manipulation, it's an attack on the image of God. And this is where it begins to get serious, because an attack on the image of God is an attack also against God. That might sound a little shocking to us. Consider this for a moment. If you walked into the break room at work, and there was your picture on the wall, and all your coworkers were throwing darts at it, what would you think? It implies a sense of hostility. If someone is furious at another and they, they pick up a photo of them in their fit of rage and they scream at it and, or they scribble on it and they tear it apart, what does that convey? It's not just an attack against that, that picture. An attack against the image is directed towards them also. And in that light, then, we see that any attack that's done against another human is grievous. Not just because of the injury that's done to them, but it's taken to new levels of seriousness when we think about God's image being involved there. The words that we use against people we don't like. Have you ever considered that you are throwing those words against God's image? And they're also indirectly having them at God. It adds a new depth to our understanding when Psalm 139 says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But on the other hand, we honor and we respect and we love God by doing the same thing then to our fellow image bearers, our acts of service, our deeds of love, our deference and our care. They don't go unnoticed. 
And how we live with and we regard one another is also how we regard our God. Fourth, I want us to see that this is a communal image as well. It's a communal image. God doesn't just create humanity on a whim. There is a, thought, a, a careful thought. There's planning that's involved. He deliberates as he begins creating. He says, let us make man according to our image. When we hear that, us, our, clues into some, us into something that's a little unexpected, but yet it's already suggested. There's more than one person here. All this time we've read in Genesis 1, we read of God creating the heavens and the earth, but we also read how the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, already at the beginning of the, of the Bible, we have the foundations of the God of the Trinity there. One God, yet eternally existing in three distinct persons. And it's not explicit here. It's only as we read the, the scriptures in their entirety, as the story progresses on, that becomes more clear for us. But even at the very beginning here, at this point, we see that God has a communal being to himself. And being made in the image of God is to be made in the image of the Trinitarian God. We're not just made in the, God, in the image of God the Father. We don't just bear the likeness of the Son or of the Spirit. We're made in the image of of, of God who is also three persons, of the one God in three. And those three persons live and they have always lived and always existed in perfect communion and in relationship with each other. See, God at his very essence is a relational God. He is a communal God. He delights in not being alone and he is never alone because even before time began, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all delighting in one another. He didn't need to make us and he existed in perfect love even at that point, even apart from us. So as we bear this image, we don't just do it as individuals. Now certainly each one of you, each person here bears God's image, but if we are the image of the Trinitarian God, then we and you, or maybe we could say y'all, you all are also the image of God when we are together here. You were intended to live in relationship with one another, just as God, the Trinity, is in relationship with himself there, with one another, each of the persons with one another. And as we live and as we dwell together, we reflect him, not just on our own, but we reflect him collectively even the fact that God designed us as man and woman, as he says they're male and female, there is a relationality that is implied with those words. Both man and woman bearing the image and living together and working together and complementing one another here. And when we do so, when we function in this way in our relationships, we are expressing God's image in a way that is much more robust than simply you or me could do on our own. Because when, God, when people come together, they are all unique individuals who bring their own qualities and gifts. I happen to know some of the, the creative instincts that some of you have here. And I appreciate that because I'm pretty lacking in those areas. Some of you I know are organizationally minded. Some of you are deep thinkers. Some of you exude joy and love. Some of you warn with carefulness. Some of you are comforters. Some of you are incredibly hospitable. 
Those are all aspects of God's character, of who he is. And you give testimony to him when you exercise those. But when we are together, and when we're exercising those gifts and bearing his image in, in our own ways, then that is where we begin to see a much more complete representation of God, of much more of his, of his aspects and his character and his qualities than just simply you or I could bear on our own. The beauty of God is best seen among us as a people, not just as individuals. He didn't make us to be loners. Our fifth and final point about the image is that it's a broken image. It's a broken image. For many of us, this sounds like this beautiful vision of life as it was meant to be lived. It also seems like it's some far-off ideal rather than how I experience life. The problem, problem for not just those questioning this, the problem for all of us here is that none of us bears the image as we ought. We are mirrors reflecting the image of our creator God, but mirrors, though, that are cracked and scratched and dusty and distorted. The thing is, a, a, a scratched and a dirty mirror still holds an image. You can still see it there behind the dust and through the cracks, but that reflection, though, that it gives is horribly marred. And in some cases, it's so distorted and it's so difficult to see that it appears to only be a fuzzy blur. And every one of us here is created in God's image and we reflect his likeness, but yet everyone here is also reflects his likeness in this dim way, like a cracked mirror. And that's not God's fault. He didn't make us this way. It's what happened to us. We bear the image as it was given to us by our parents, just like children look like their parents. And our parents bear the image as it was given to them, and so forth, on and on, until you get to all of our very first parents, Adam and Eve. And those first parents created by God in the beginning were that crystal clear, that pristine image of God, just like a brand new mirror. But when sin entered into the world through their actions, through, through their disobedience, through their failure, it came like a rock that busted the mirror. And that's what sin does. It destroys. It takes all things that are good and beautiful and makes a mess of it all. And the reflecting image in them was horribly marred. Now, if that's what happened to our first parents, then how could their descendants expect anything else? A broken image can't fix itself, and it can only bring forth another broken image. What's needed is a fresh image, a new one. A new image to come in and interrupt the broken generations and restore the broken into newness. It's from our affirmation of faith this morning from Colossians 1. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says the son, of, the son is the exact imprint of his nature. Yet this son, the very image of God's nature himself, because he himself is God, also took upon himself then the human image of God to shine forth and reflect God's image as his, in his human nature perfectly so that those who are in him then would instead bear his shining image rather than the broken image that they inherited. And so even as his bodily image was marred on the cross, as it was disfigured, he went through it for people who bear a broken image. 
to, fear, to, to free us from the sin which has shattered us. And his resurrection then is a shining, whole, perfect image of God that's brought together once again in body and soul. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we have borne the image of God, and of, uh, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Friends, if you're in Christ, then the good news is that there is hope for you. Your destiny isn't to bear the broken image of God inherited by Adam, but to be restored and to shine forth the renewed and the perfect image. It's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.